Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Murky fool, like squirtle and cake bowl. Cold blood is with us, Robski. I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about and experiencing stress and anxiety. I've been thinking about the causes, supposed cures, consequences, and internal and external responses to it. And I've been thinking about the pandemic of anxiety and depression that has developed around and for our youth, and the myths-guided approaches to understanding it and easing its pain and its destructive thrust. My guests today are Abby Greenberg and Maggie Sarachek. They are the creators of the Anxiety Sisters, a worldwide online community that provides emotional support and evidence-based strategies for anxiety sufferers. And they're the authors of the insightful and practical research-based book, The Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide, How You Can Become More Hopeful, Connected, and Happy. Welcome, Abby and Maggie, and thank you both so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. We're delighted to be here. Wonderful. Thank you. So you two spent the last 30 years figuring out how to outsmart your anxiety-filled brains, and you've been doing it together, which is so nice. I want to just begin with how how you two met. Sure. Um, This is Maggie, and um, we met as undergraduates um, at the University of Pennsylvania, where we both graduated from, and we really... became very fast friends, I think, because we sort of recognized each other as definite soulmates. And part of that soulmateness was that we both recognized a struggle in each other. We might not have named it as anxiety, but um, we recognized that we were each struggling. And we bonded over that quite a bit. It was, um, the, it was the kindred panic expressions. Yes, yes. Um, so we bonded over just a lot of the things that we were experiencing and thinking about that we now know is anxiety, but at the time it was just like this is sort of how we are and how our brains are wired. I'm guessing too like that you identify a, a resonance with one another and then there's a safety in that space of, of you know, that's tribe, right? I, I, I see myself yeah. in you and I see you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you, and you seem to at least be experiencing some of the same things that I am that I don't understand. Yeah, yeah. So let's jump in with one of the biggest myths and and misunderstanding about anxiety. You write in the book, you say, anxiety is not a choice or a decision or a character flaw. And I actually say it in the beginning and the end, which I'm so glad. As I was going through the book today, I'm like, yeah, both places. We need to hear that a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. as, As such, I can't just relax or stop thinking about it or snap out of it, even though there is nothing I'd rather do. The truth is, when people tell me to calm down, it only makes the anxiety worse. That is true. Yes, many people, uh, I think people who don't have experience with anxiety, uh, they tend to think that it's something that we can control really easily. And as anxiety sufferers, Mags and I can tell you that that is not the case, <laughs> that, you know, that if we could just snap out of it, believe me, we would. It's it's as uncomfortable for us as it is for any of the people that we're letting down if we can't do something with them or if we have to cancel a plan you know, it's not that we want to be unreliable or we want to cancel. It is, it's a disorder, not a decision. 
You know, you talk about that a lot throughout the book in in various um, areas about relationships with people with anxiety and how, you know, obviously, and maybe not so obviously to some, um, an individual's anxiety impacts others and the individual experiencing the anxiety is aware of that, also aware of maybe the irrationality of their anxiety or their experience. And I think that's such an important, important element to put into the conversation as far as how anxiety impacts our relationships and also the reaction of those we're in relationship with to our anxiety um, and their misunderstanding, but also their frustration and, and discomfort. You talk about oftentimes it's... Um, it's, it's mirrored by those around us. And that is extremely uncomfortable for people. So yeah, they want us to just stop. Right. Yes. yes. Yeah. I mean, it's easier to, um, it's easier to manage when you're not living with someone with anxiety or in a relationship with them. So I think it, but I think it's also um, very anxiety provoking when you are with someone who is, having so much anxiety and and seems out of control or feels out of control or is out of control with their anxiety. And so I think sometimes people either have to separate from it or they seem like they're angry um, at the person with anxiety um, or they just because they just really don't know what to do. And um, often people want to help and they don't know how to help. And um, so a lot of times we do get something like just relax or it's all OK. Um, and it ends up in a big frustration for everyone because the anxiety sister saying, like, not only is that not helpful, but that's actually harmful because that's putting this on me. That's really putting giving me a lot of blame and shame that I can't just relax. I was thinking about that. I was reading the book because I was thinking on top of that, there's a natural response. And and we've seen it so much in our culture in the last few years, um, as far as people digging in their heels when um, they have a position and someone's trying to argue them or rationalize them out of it. And when there's this emotional component, when we're in the, the midst of this emotional experience of our anxiety and the kind of sometimes terror that comes with that, when someone says, you know, tries to be rational, talk us out of it, give us the the concrete examples as to why we're what we're thinking isn't right. Um, You know, the anxiety flares up and it's just is fighting it, right? It's like playing tennis, they're just lobbing away those those rational suggestions and sort of digging in more um, to the panic. And I think that's so critical for people who are involved with people who have anxiety to understand. And I think it's really, this is Abs, by the way, and I think it's really important for both anxiety sufferers and people who care about them or who are in their lives to understand that when we are in, and when we're experiencing anxiety, our body goes into fight, flight, or freeze. And that response, the sympathetic nervous response, is not a rational response. In fact, when we're in that response, our access to the part of our brain that controls executive functioning and rational decision-making and evaluation of consequences and all of that, it's cut off, right? We, we don't have access to our thinking part of our brain. All we really are is at that point in our emotional system, in our limbic system. And I, I know that probably sounded very sciencey, but we really 
try to teach people this basic neuroscience because once they understand that this is not their fault, there's nothing they did that made it so that they couldn't think straight when they were in the midst of their anxiety, that this is what happens when your body goes into fight, flight, or freeze, your circuits to your thinking part of your brain get cut off. And you can't make a, a clear or rational decision. It's not possible. When I was walking to the dog this morning before the interview, I was thinking about making t-shirts for highly sensitive people. And now I'm just thinking we need one for anxiety sufferers. Because you've got to be like, um, I'm in my amygdala. I can't hear you. Like, <laughs> exactly. Listen, don't, don't laugh. But when we do workshops, one of the first things that we have all our participants do is sign a contract. And the contract basically explains that, you know, the blame for all of this goes to your amygdala, not on you. And that just because people can't see the the illness or the disorder doesn't mean it isn't legitimate and doesn't exist. You know, if you break your leg and you're wearing a cast, people will trip over themselves to help you get into the elevator and they would never ask you to take the stairs. It wouldn't even occur to them. But when you're dealing with anxiety or depression or any other illness that's in your brain, People can't see it. And so, you know, that's when people turn around and say, just relax, because they don't see that, in fact, there is a part of your brain that can light up on an MRI that's very much behaving badly. And I think that's so important in this last decade that now we can see these things on an MRI and it sort of gives, not that it's a shame that it came to that, but it gives a validity to these experiences. Um I'm I'm thinking about, I did an interview a couple weeks ago with William Stixrud, who is a neuropsychologist. And he was talking about, you know, the culture that we have, Western culture of, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, or just feel the fear and do it anyway, just push through. And this well-meaning, I know that comes from a lot of, a lot of people, especially teachers, and then parents will adopt it because they think it's the right approach. You know, that that's the solution, you know? Right. Mm. Right. There was a, there was, we interviewed, um, Camilla Walgreen, who's a an ad, a mental health advocate. Carmela. Carmela. I always say that wrong. Carmela Walgreen, who's a mental health advocate. And um, she was saying she was sitting in a Weight Watchers meeting and um, the leader kind of said something like, well, we choose our happiness every day. And she raised her hand and she said, excuse me? Like, I, those of us who have depression and anxiety and other mental health issues, it's not that simple. It's not a choice. This is, you know, this is a brain illness. And, and it's, and it's also very, um, it's disheartening in many ways to hear, well, you just choose your happiness, you know, because (laughs) what about it's such a tricky space. And I want to talk about a little later in the interview. um, Because you mentioned Albert Ellis, which I thought was so funny, because I had a meeting at my son's school yesterday in the well-meaning person I was speaking with brought up Albert Ellis, and I'm like, you're missing the point, because he was kind of focused on, well, rational thought, right? And if we can just mm-hmm. change our thought, and then the situation will change. And I'm like, that's not exactly what he right. meant. And and it's right. it's not that, oh, you can just choose to be happy. It's like, yeah, we need to be conscious of our thoughts, and our thoughts are, as you guys talk about a lot in the book, um, creating neural pathways in there, then creating habitual responses and emotional reactions. And that part's all true. But then as this Weight Watchers um, leader got a little bit mistaken, <laughs> that's a really big impact, yeah. is it doesn't mean, okay, just think differently and everything will be fine. It, it's not, well, it does sort of, but it's not that easy. Right. So. Right. Especially for those of us who have wonky amygdalas. Yeah. 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 
Um, so you mentioned it briefly, but I'd like to talk about it a little more. The idea that anxiety um, is very physical, that we aren't just when we're having anxiety, feeling it, the anxiousness in our minds, although it might have started there, maybe, or maybe in the digestive tract, um, but that it's proven now that the mind and body are intertwined. And it does just boggle the mind to think that that took so long to actually prove, but it is now accepted. Um, it's so long for Western cultures. Yeah. I think that that is why we have you know, a chapter on a lot of Eastern healing practices. And we're not saying that's like, oh, just do that and you'll be fine in any way. But we're saying but we're saying those practices recognize that the mind and the body are not two separate things. They're not connected. They are one. You know, it's just it's all they're all us. It's yeah. all one. It's an integrated system. Right. So right. you are saying um, that there is a, a secret sauce um, acceptance, agency, and connection. So what was it that you found through the 30 years and through your, your last five years of work with Anxiety Sisters that allowed you to sort of drill down to these three main com concepts as being sort of the touch points for working with your anxiety? Well, we spent 20 years fighting our anxiety as hard as we possibly could, and that didn't work. <laughs> so we sat there kind of scratching our heads saying, okay, we're doing everything in our power to stop this anxiety and we can't stop it. We've gone to every ist that exists. Like we've been to the therapist and the psychiatrist and the cardiologist and the hypnotist. I mean, anyone who could offer us help we've been to and we've taken medication and we've done all the different therapies and yet we're still anxious. So we, we, we stopped for a second and said, okay, we need a paradigm change because the way we're thinking is clearly not working. It's, you know, this, this pursuit of stopping anxiety is, is where we're going astray. And once we figured that part out, our lives changed really profoundly and relatively quickly. I mean, the, we, we say we spent 20 years trying to learn how to figure out the anxiety situation and then the next 10 years trying to help other people figure it out so they wouldn't have to take 20 years to figure it out. Um, but that was the first stop for us was realizing that, oh, okay, you can live well with anxiety. You don't have to fight it. You, it can be part of who you are. And that's sort of where we go with the anxiety sisters, because that defined it's part of our definition of abs and mags. We we are these women with anxiety who also are a million other things, too, and can live very fulfilled lives, even though we don't stop the anxiety in its tracks when we want to. And it's such an important paradigm shift because there's also one, it's it's in, an impossible feat to just eliminate it. Um, mm -hmm. And and two, there are likely aspects of where the anxiety is is driven from that derives from that are a aspects of your personalities that you wouldn't trade for anything right a, a sensitivities right. And, and and empathies and compassions and and creativity and and who knows what that that That's share <laughs> share elements yeah um and and you mentioned when you're talking about acceptance in the book that our western culture has this quick fix not only mentality, but a pressure to sort of fix things and do it in a prescribed manner in a specific amount of time. And that if we don't, it's our failure. Um, how does that impact the experience of someone with anxiety? Well, I think that, um, you know, we've all seen these books for, for any kind of human struggle that we have, right? Um, 
10 days to perfect thighs, you know, seven minutes a day to speak Chinese or, you know, whatever, uh, a six day program to financial freedom. So you'll never have to work again. You know, all of these kind of very quick fixes. And, and you know, we, we're bombarded on social media with um, and on TV with images of perfection. Um, someone looking perfect, someone's family being perfect, um, that that if there is a problem, you know, it's a very I think it's in a very American also uh, way to to go about things. If if there is a problem, we can solve it and it's going to take three steps or five steps or 10 steps and it's going to be very neat and you're just going to go forward and there's going to be no backsliding and it's not things are going to work. And and if you don't, if you can't do that, then the problem is yours. Then there goes the blame and shame. You know, there goes the there's the just do it. Or, you know, if you really want it, you can get there. And that is filled with the blame and shame because those of us who have wonky brains, we can make a lot of progress and we can learn to manage our anxiety. But it is not a neat. It is not an easy um, it is not like sort of like, okay, now it's done. I've got it. It's an everyday pursuit. And, and with everything in our culture, right? It, it, I mean, that impacts everyone. This idea yeah. that, you know, you heap on the blame and shame and then out of that, yeah, comes more anxiety and depression and frustration and just, well, then why bother and, and, um, give up. And I'm, I'm thinking about, um, a, a major approach of ACT therapy and the idea that we can't just, when something that we experience as uncomfortable um, or highly emotional or as uh, labeled negative, we can't just zoom into like fix it mode and protection mode and make it go away, right? And that's kind right. of our culture. Instead, it's it's a uh, as you say, like a a lack of um, trying to fix and an acceptance, and instead of resisting and embracing, right? Let's let's hug our amygdala yeah. and be like, okay, amygdala, we know you're trying to do us a good a good deed. Um, right. we, you you know, we just got to now now work with you. Um, and I think that's so important for parents as well um, to Happy. know when with kids that like your job is to hold space. It's not to protect right. and control and fix and, and, and what a relief and then how much more impactful you're going to be in Absolutely. supporting your kids. Absolutely. And, and our job, I think Abby and I talk about this a lot, that it's very difficult as a parent. We understand that it's it's difficult because we all want to protect our kids and we know what it feels like to suffer and we don't want our kids to suffer. Um, but in doing that, in that protection, sometimes we fail to hold that space and teach them that, you know, anxiety is not negative, a negative emotion, um, that there aren't really negative and positive emotions. We all are full of all the emotions. That's, that's what it means to be a human being is to be, is to experience the full range of range of emotions. It's so important. It's such an important shift. We really tell, we really think it's part of our mission to tell people the truth as anxiety sufferers, that healing is not linear. You're going to take a few steps forward and then you might take a few steps back. You might land on your butt a few times and have to get right back up again. You might feel like you're cruising along doing great for a year and then suddenly you backslide. It's not a linear process. It doesn't just go from A to B in a straight line. And it's a messy process. 
And of course, that that goes against the whole quick quick fix culture that we live in, because, you know, they want you to have the five easy steps. And there aren't five easy steps. And that's humanness, right? In, in all regard, yeah. there, you're, there are ups and downs. There are days you think you feel so clear and happy and light, and, and you might wake up the next day, and who knows why, you're, you know, you, that's gone. And, and it, I think it robs us, if we think we're always supposed to feel that, it robs us of the, the, the importance of those feelings, but also then we're in panic. Well, wait, what happened to that? You know, how, how did I get here again? Um, right. What do I need to do to get that back? In, in instead of you know resting with it and right. it's really important for people to to really be accepting of all their emotions not yeah. just anxiety but you know it, like we were talking with uh, Cheryl Jones from good grief about you know our culture the western cultures don't always make enough space for grieving they they don't allow us to sit in that feeling because it's so uncomfortable and it's so difficult, but it's part of the human richness. It's part of our experiences that we can love each other so much that the grief is so painful, it, you know, it, 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 and, and to rob us of the ability to sit with that and feel that and accept that as part of who we are. It, it creates anxiety. Oh, yeah. I'm just thinking like the dissonance that society creates by, you know, not having any conversations around death and grief and no space for it. So many people just live their lives reacting to their fear and avoidance of their mortality. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. And, you know, what you resist persists. I mean, we've heard that. That's a mantra in a 12-step program, I believe. It's mm -hmm. what you resist persists. I mean, you have to... You have to sort of, I mean, I hate to say it, lean in to all emotions, whether the, the public labels them positive or negative, which Maggie and I try not to do, because, you know, there's also a lot of meaning to be found in the difficult emotions. Well, yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's a mantra. And it's also, I think, a, a universal law. I know um, Sheldrake um, did some studies on just energetically, it's a physics phenomenon uh, where our energy, when we're trying to like push the spider away, you know, the, the spider comes closer. Right. Right. Well, yeah. that, but that's what Mags and I discovered after 20 years is that the more we tried to push the anxiety down and get rid of it and close the door in its face, the more it seemed to show up right next to us. And all that we've been talking about just in the last few minutes, those are also the elements that create agency. And yes. agency is, is a second ingredient in the, the secret sauce. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Like, what, what does it mean? What does agency mean? Um, and then maybe talk a little bit about activating our superpowers. Well, I, I think that agency for us means that in terms of anxiety, it, it really means that that we get to make the decisions about who we see, where we go, what we do, not our anxiety. Because, um, you know, Abby and I both had, well, I at least had terrible, terrible phobias. And I had agoraphobia, too, at one point. And so my anxiety was really in charge of saying, like, yeah, you can't go there, or you can't do that, or you can't try that. And that's sort of the opposite of agency. Um, agency is like when we say, yeah, we're going to, we're going to have our anxiety. We're going to feel it. And it's, and it doesn't feel nice in your body, but I'm still going to do what I decide to do. And my anxiety can come along with me, but it, it can't be in the driver's seat. Um, sorry. Go no, ahead. no, go ahead. Um, so that's, that's our, 
our idea of agency is that is that we get to create and choose um, what we do in our lives rather than our anxiety. So when you say you had agoraphobia, I think that would be maybe surprising to people. Like, wait, what does she mean she had it? Um, do you not have it anymore? Like, how long did you have it? And maybe just talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, like what that experience was like, because I thought that was really enlightening in the book, at least for me, that the elements that I sort of had connected with it weren't necessarily true. And, and it didn't really look the way that I think we see it on, on TV or something like that. Yeah, well, I think the thing about agoraphobia is that we often think it's fear of leaving the house, right? That's what people think it is. And it's and it's not so much a fear of leaving the house. It's a fear of having a panic attack or getting ill when you're outside the house and not being able to get help or not being able to get back home where to your safe space or so. Basically, as I started to um, experience more and more phobias, I was living in New York City at the time and on the 16th floor of a high rise and I was phobic about the elevator and then I was phobic about the subway and the bus because a lot of phobias are around transportation, not just mine, but a lot of people find, become phobic around transportation. Um so it became that the only place I felt safe was in my apartment. Um, and I had to, and that, that lasted for a while. And I, and I really had to struggle to do some exposure therapy, you know, take on my phobias one by one and start to do them. Um, and once I did that enough, the agoraphobia did go away. For me, you know, for some people, the agoraphobia is much more stubborn. But for me, it did go away. And um, but I do have to say, you know, after the pandemic or we are still in the pandemic, but after the lockdown of the pandemic, it was rough for me to leave my house again, because when I am anxious, I tend to want to be at home. And so it is something I I know how to work with now, but it's not like that impulse is completely gone. We we think that one of the most insidious parts of anxiety is something that Maggie and I call shrinking world syndrome or SWS. And basically that means that when you are not in charge, when your anxiety is in charge, and we can understand anxiety being in charge because for us, that was the case for a very long time. I mean, it's hard to take the back, but when your anxiety is in charge... It shrinks your world. It says to you, you know what? You shouldn't go that far from home because what if something happens and you can't get back into bed? Or you shouldn't get in that elevator. Or you shouldn't go on that airplane. Or you shouldn't visit that particular person. And before you know it, it's not just a geographical shrinking, but it's actually an emotional shrinking as well. Because, you know, there's less and less that you feel able to do. And it kind of creates a neural pathway, which, you know, feeds on itself and becomes the new default, which is to stay close to home or for some people to not leave their home at all. You talk, right. I was going to say, you talk about a lot of neural pathways being created. You talk about that in the book as far as these loops um, that then can exaggerate the panic and also then limit the world more. And um, I, I was thinking just a little bit about the why 
transportation tends to be a place where um, phobias tend to arise and that connection to the agoraphobia. Because I thought when you talk in the book about a lot of times with people, they can develop sort of support systems, like I'll have someone go with me because the fear is is not leaving the house, but what if something happens when I'm somewhere else? Is is that, you know, why maybe the elevator or the car or, or the bus um, yeah. tend to be more anxiety-inducing? Yeah. I think that's, you know, there are certain categories of things that tend to... Um, uh, tend to make people with agoraphobia react like everyone is different but you know transportation is one being in a crowded place maybe another um being in a in large like um sometimes meadows large sort of spaces uh is is another like so there's certain these different categories of things but i think you know for me i always felt it was like yeah because transportation meant leaving my safe space um, and so that probably had something to do with it was, was leaving the safe, um, our safe space. But, you know, I, I also think with, with the, the shrinking world syndrome, as we call it, which is a little different than agoraphobia at times, it's also that even what so many of us with anxiety let ourselves think about doing, um, is, is lessened. You know, I, I always say that, you know, I, I got married fairly young, met my husband fairly young, but I didn't have kids till I was much, much older because with my anxiety, I could not even think that I could get pregnant and, you know, be a mom while being that anxious. I just thought that's not something that I can take on. It, I mean, it changed the shape of even what I thought was possible for myself. So I want to come back to, I'm speaking with Abby Greenberg and Maggie Sarachak, and they're the authors of The Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide, How You Can Become More Hopeful, Connected, and Happy. And I just want to go back to what we were talking about um, of of not resisting, and then what we're going to do instead, right? Because a, a right. majority of the book is dedicated to that, the tools, and you call it riding the wave, uh, instead of resisting, you know, the, the, the focus is on riding the wave. Um, and I love that I hadn't thought of that before. There's the two examples of the riptide that we're resisting and fighting against it. And instead, we're, we're jumping on the surfboard and, and riding the wave um, to not get rid of the anxiety, but to still be able to do something in the moment to create some ease. How does that create more agency and relate to being anxiously happy, riding the wave? Well, when you're in the midst of of severe anxiety or a panic attack or anything like that, you definitely feel out of control, right? I mean, you don't feel like you have control over what's going on in your body and in your head. So when we talk about all these different tools you can use to get yourself sort of through that, that time to ride the wave until it passes, because anxiety, like every single human emotion and sensation does pass. It doesn't feel like it will pass, but it really will we're not advocating that you just kind of hang out and say, gee, I hope this passes soon because it's just so uncomfortable. And that's where the book comes in is we give you a lot of techniques to use to help you distract yourself and ride that wave. But when you do that, when you, when you ride the wave and get through it, each time you do, you're teaching your brain 
that you have control, that you have some agency. And it reinforces itself. So what ends up happening is that eventually, at some point, you you start to, it, it becomes the default to just ride the wave as opposed to fight it. In other words, the fighting impulse is there for all of us, but with practice, it can lessen to the point where you will default to a riding the wave strategy. One of the tools that one always has with them uh, is breath. You say, we are always 10 breaths away from reduced anxiety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things we, we give, um, we talk a lot about why <clears throat> breathing exercises can be so helpful. And we also say that they're helpful for some people and not for others. I know when I was in the throes of panic, breathing exercises made me hyperventilate, you know, and I, and I didn't feel better. So that's why we say, yeah, these can, these can really help, you know, for some people and you try it and see if it helps you. And maybe it won't help you today, but maybe next year it will help you or tomorrow. And so that's why we really believe, like, as you can see in our book, we give so many different tools and techniques because we know, you know, one size doesn't fit all. And in fact, one size may not fit us two days in a row. So, um, you know, that's that's sort of why we want to give a, a wide variety of ideas. So one of the other tools that you talk about uh, in the book was interrupting the buildup and creating a pause or, you know, being aware that, oh, this, I've gotten on this train and I can see where it's going. And so that I actually may have the ability and not always, but I may have the ability to stop it, stop it now before it, it heads all the way down the track. What, what does that look like? So when you're in the midst of anxiety, you have stuff going on in your body, right? The symptoms and all the things that are alerting you to the fact that you are, that something's going on and you're really uh, upset about it. And then there's the thoughts that you're having. And obviously we can't stop the physical symptoms no matter how hard we try. I mean, we can obviously take symptom relief for some of them, but we, uh, you know, mostly we have to sort of get through the physical symptoms, but we can do something with those cognitive things that are happening, the things that we're thinking. So for example, you know, we start off in an anxiety loop by noticing, let's just say a symptom. Oh, my heart's beating really fast and I'm feeling a little clammy. I wonder what that's about. And then our brain jumps in and says, oh, I saw in a Bayer aspirin commercial that that's a sign of a heart attack. And that's right there is where it can, it can go either way. You can either spin off into catastrophe and, oh, my God, I'm having a heart attack. And by the way, no judgment. I've been there, done that many, many times. I've been to the (laughs) ER for this at least four times, so I would never judge anyone. But there's also where that space is also where you could say, wait a minute, just because I saw it on a commercial, does that necessarily mean that that's what's happening here? Let me think about this for a second and to try to engage that cognitive piece now. It, it, that this is something that we're describing very simplistically, and it is very challenging. It is, it is not a beginner's activity. It takes a lot of practice to get there. But once you do get there, it's uh, honestly nothing short of miraculous, because then you, you get used to taking that breath right before you jump into the rabbit hole. You get used to taking that pause and saying, hmm, am I 
am I really thinking? Is this really a true assumption that I am having a heart attack? Is that really probable here? And that's what Albert Ellis was talking about that he mentioned earlier. Yeah. Like, this is where it's helpful. And it comes yeah. internally as an internal process. And it's, it, it's incredibly helpful um, when that can work. So it matters how we're talking to ourselves, what we're saying. Uh, also, that we are being compassionate to ourselves when we're talking to ourselves and asking ourselves, you know, kindly, what do I need right now? And not berating, berating ourselves. How is that so transformative when we can shift to that? Well, we we have both really found the practice of self-compassion incredibly transformative um, because I think what it is is that um, when we are talking to ourselves in a calm and sort of loving and compassionate way and acknowledging that we're in pain or acknowledging that we're uncomfortable, um, we go from that fight or flight, you know, so reaction into that rest and digest, into that um less anxious reaction where we're able to think about how we want to respond or how we want to manage the situation. Or basically what happens is, is that when we're sort of screaming at ourselves, yelling at ourselves, which, you know, it's very easy to do that, right? Because maybe we hear someone else's voice, maybe it's our own, but we're screaming at ourselves. We often put ourselves more into anxiety, more into the fight and flight reaction. So like Abby was saying before, when we're in fight or flight, we can't access that frontal lobe, that part of us that solves problems, the part of us that has executive functioning, the part of us that kind of thinks about what we want to do. Um, but if we start to talk to ourselves in a gentle way, like we would a dear friend, and we start to realize that we're just struggling like everybody struggles, then it can help calm us and soothe us enough that we may be able to get out of the fight and flight and start sort of thinking about how we want to handle a situation rather than um, just sort of being on automatic pilot. Within that same conversation, I, I think the last point that I want to make sure we hit on a little bit is this idea of labeling your experience and why it can be so powerful and, and critical and, and sort of a magic moment at times. And I think um, we, we might not mean labeling in the way that some might hear it at first. Um, but I know for me, um, one of my children had has experienced a lot of anxiety um, historically. And it won, I guess, fourth grade, one of the counselors at the school said, you know, we, we drove a long way to school. And she, I said, you know, you know, some mornings, it just the spinning starts, and we go and go. And I feel like, you know, we just start feeding off each other. And she was like, your job is to just label it one word. Uh, you're feeling right. this. Oh, you had a dream. And it, it was that. And then stop whatever you have to do to not say another word, just stop. And it was miraculous to then mm. watch them work themselves through it so sometimes quickly and get to a point like, well, I'm sure it'll be fine. Or you know what, it's not really that big a deal. Or I can handle it. Hmm. Yeah, what we name, we can tame. You know, I mean, you know, it, that gives us agency, right? Because, you know, if we have a name for our anxiety, then we know what to call it when we tell it to sit down and be quiet. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and and honestly, when we work with children, we we do that quite literally. You know, um, a, I, a friend of mine's son uh, has severe obsessive compulsive disorder, and so we have called the voice in his head that tells him that he needs to do these compulsions. We call it we call that person Bossy Bob. Oh, I love and that. that that has really helped him so much because he, you know, he says, yeah, Bossy Bob was telling me that I have to do this, this and this. But I realize that I can just tell Bossy Bob to jump in a lake, you know, and that's that's really that's very healing. And we do that as adults, too. In other words, you know, in workshops, Mags and I have, have invited people to draw their anxiety, to actually give it characteristics, human, animal, whatever they want. Some people do theirs with claws. Some people theirs are cute. You know, it's like, you know, everybody, but it's very therapeutic because when you're done, you sort of have, you can, you sort of get some control back because now you know what it is. You can look at that and say, yes, this is my, this is my anxiety. And I can now have a, a way of communicating with it, a and way of soothing with it and that mm -hmm. technique can work in for so many of us and especially kids in so many aspects of their lives i'm remembering uh over the summer a, a friend of ours son who's 16 and he was saying yeah I, he, he had started therapy recently and said yeah you know i i have this part of myself you know named her Rhonda or something and said you know when she mm -hmm. comes i used to be not kind to Rhonda, you know, da da da, get out of here, you know, I, I don't, I don't care what you have to say anything. So, you know, I realized that wasn't very nice because she's a part of myself. He said, so instead I invite her to sit down with me on the couch and I listen to her and then I say, yeah, you know what, I hear you, but no, we're not going to do it that way or, you know, we're, <laughs> we're still going to do what we want to do. That, that was is so great. Beautiful. Yeah, wasn't it? That's something Abby always said that I loved. Um, she would always say, yeah, I tell my anxiety it can come along with me, but it's not driving. I, I loved and that. I loved that idea. Um, it was very helpful for me because I always felt I had severe panic and I always felt like I was out of control. And by being able to say that, and often I said it to myself out loud, because research has shown that the voice that's the most powerful one in your head is your own. So if you can have your ears hear your own voice say something, it really carries a lot of weight. So I would say to myself out loud, you know, you've got this, your anxiety can come along, but just make sure you're the one driving. And that really, really changed things for me. It made me, it gave me agency. It made me feel like, all right, even when the anxiety shows up, I still have some say over my own decisions. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the connection with anxiety and depression. You mentioned in the book that in Europe, actually, there is now in the whatever there mm -hmm. is the relevant DSM, relative DSM, that there is a, a, now a label for that. Um, and I'm not sure those yeah, labels sometimes help or don't, but that, 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 that they're often in combination, anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. They're kissing cousins. <laughs> yeah, that's what we like to say. Um, you know, they're, Study after study has shown, particularly if you've had severe depression first, you are very, very likely to experience an anxiety disorder at some point in your life. But we think the other, we think that also if you've had anxiety, you know, there's a good chance you're going to experience some depression. Um, so, you know, the two are in some senses not really so separate often. Um you know, there, there's and a they cause each other, right? Yeah, they ca and they're 
there's a slightly different quality to the feeling of each of them, but they're they're really fairly similar. And like Abby said, they cause each other. You know, it's it's depressing to be dealing with anxiety all the time. And, you know, it's very anxiety provoking to be dealing with depression. And it makes sense as to what we know more about the brain now, right? As, as those yeah. neural pathways are created. Um, yeah, it's happening in the same part, basically, of the brain. And that's why so many of the treatments are so similar. So let's talk about another relationship that... that um, is surprisingly newly accepted, <laughs> which is the brain and the digestive system. Um, I know that there's a lot of conversation about that now in relation to um, high sensitivity and and um, sensory sensitivity and IBS and, and kind of problems in the digestive tract. But you guys talk about it as far as a system of two brains that are communicating to, back and forth to one another. Yes, we do. We have two brains. We have the penthouse brain in our head, which is sort of the seat of the, the central nervous system. And then we have what's called the enteric nervous system, which is in our guts. And people are always shocked to hear that 95% of our serotonin is made in our gut. People think that's a brain thing. And it is, but it's made in the gut. And the, the, um, the gut brain and the penthouse brain communicate via a nerve called the vagus nerve. And it's a two-way channel. And what's important about that is that now neurogastroenterologists, which are the scientists who study the connection between the brain and the, and the gut, um, now they're starting to realize that things that they thought were neurological actually start in the stomach. For example, Parkinson's disease. You know, they're now discovering that, that they can detect changes in the gut biome 20 years before a Parkinson's patient will suffer any kind of neurological symptom. So it's, it's really interesting. The future is totally in the biome in terms of the answers to a lot of our brain disorders. This is hmm. so interesting. And so interesting that I, I literally can remember hearing on the radio when they said, oh, and today we realize like the brain is not a separate, you know, entity separate <laughs> from the digestive system. And as we thought, they were both like completely independent, <laughs> just like, are you a person? Yeah. Were you in a body <laughs> when you thought that? Yeah. Like, were you? Well, I, you know, I anyone? Yeah, exactly. It was interesting. We had on a, a, um, a professor, Robert Smith, on our, on our podcast, um, a while ago, and he was talking about just how that that sort of that happened, where um, there was a, a like a sort of a deal with the church at, at one point in in sort of Western culture, where it was like, well, you take care of the soul, and we take, and then medicine takes care of the body, and so basically they separated like all the thoughts from the body. You know, so, yes, um, science can have the body and the church can have sort of the thoughts and the soul. And that that was a lot of the reason why we've become so fractured in terms of how we think of the mind and body. And again, like that's where we've seen that Eastern culture didn't really have that same kind of fracture, which is why, you know, they, they sort of are much better at recognizing all of those kinds of connections. So I want to throw out um, two sort of depressing and concerning facts um, 
to for all of us to ponder. And then, then in the last few minutes, I want to talk about the last ingredient of the secret sauce. So the depressing and concerning facts, the average high schooler experiences the same amount of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. So we can all ponder that for a minute. And as we do, we can also ponder that 31.1% of adults in the U.S. will experience an anxiety disorder at some point in their lives and that women are twice as likely. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not something that is important for others, um, but for us all. And uh, with that, the third ingredient, connection. And maybe we'll start with why it's um, better eating chocolate together. <laughs> yeah there was a study that was done um that the the the, the results of it showed that um eat that that when you share an experience like for instance eating a chocolate if you just eat it in the same space with another person then it will serve to make you feel more connected and happy and relaxed than if you eat it alone in other words we we know that just being next to another human is really important. We are born to connect. We are designed that way. We have mirror neurons, which are, are the whole purpose of them is so that we can react and read other people. And so, you know, if you smile at someone, they often smile back. That's an example of your mirror, mirror neurons, you know, reading another person. We really, that, that's how we're designed. We're a social species. So when we are not connecting, and it doesn't have to be on an intimate level, it can be sitting next to somebody, having a piece of chocolate, it can be waving to, you know, somebody walking down the street and saying hello to the, the grocer. Whatever that is, when we connect, our happiness increases, our anxiety and depression decrease. It, it, you have such wonderful suggestions in, in, in the book and many and, and a lot to choose from, which I think is so critical because, as you said, everyone's different and things that might work one day don't work another day. So, you know, so many fabulous suggestions for connection, so creative and, and so useful. When I was reading that section, I was thinking about social anxiety. And I was thinking about, especially for anxiety sufferers who are extroverts, which there are many, and what a sort of double bind that is for them. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, um, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is that um, extroversion, whether an extrovert or an introvert, people sometimes get confused and they say like, oh, someone who's shy is an introvert or um, someone who's outgoing is an extrovert. And it's really about where you get your energy. You know, do you get energy from being alone or are you someone that gets more energy when you're out, you know, and about with other people, connecting to other people? Um, And a lot of us are somewhere in between, (laughs) you know, a lot of us are somewhere in between like introvert and extrovert um, in terms of, Sometimes we need the alone time and sometimes we need the more of the connection. But um, so you can have social anxiety and be an extrovert. So the feeling is like, I I really want to connect and I really want to be out and about and I really want to be able to speak to people. But it's too difficult for me. It causes me too much anxiety. And that is um, it's a hard position to be in. It really is. And there's there are ways to work with social anxiety. But I I also think something of what you were saying before about like the high school kids um, having that we wrote in our book 
this study in our book showing how much anxiety our kids have. And a lot of that is that that social media piece in a way has created so much social anxiety, both because we are less adept at connecting people, you know, we're less adept at connecting because of our reliance on social media and because there's so much anxiety, you know, in, in social media itself. So it's, well, well, we should just clarify for a second that really the social anxiety is not about being afraid to be social. It's about fear of judgment and evaluation. That's the mechanism that that's that's what's underneath a social phobia. So and I can't think of anything more judgmental than Instagram. <laughs> so, yeah. so so it makes sense that our kids who are spending an inordinate amount of time on social media and we're by the way, we're not saying there aren't good things about social media because we do believe no. that. But the, the, the bad things about social media is that it creates a lot more judgment. And adolescence is already a time when you're just a a normal average adolescent is terrified of judgment, then if that person happens to suffer from social anxiety, then that's tripled or quadrupled and it's paralyzing. So that I just wanted to make that clear. That oh, oh, I think it is one of the most important points we've made in the conversation, just because understanding the why they don't, because you're thinking, oh, well, you, you, you know, you're, you're lonely, you feel you want to be friends, well, then go and be with them. And without understanding the what's stopping them, not that they don't yeah. want to be social, that that may be the top priority, but they can't because of that fear and anxiety around the judgment. Um, and, we, and some of the loneliest people we know are people who suffer from social anxiety. And one other thing about social anxiety that I think is so interesting that has really come up so much in our community, um, in our in our community of the Anxiety Sisters, is that um, social anxiety can look a lot of different ways. So, you know, people write us and say, I, I can't eat in a I can't meet my friends to go eat in a restaurant because eating in eating in a restaurant, I am. I am so worried I'm going to spill something on my clothes and everyone's going to look at me or I can't um, I can't make certain I can't make phone calls um, like I, if I have to order a pizza or um, call a doctor. I have so much anxiety just about making that phone call that I will stutter and no one will be able to understand me or that I will say something wrong or, or so, eat weird. Right. Maybe if I'll be eating, they'll look at me and see I'm chewing in a weird way. Exactly. So social anxiety doesn't always look like, oh, uh, I don't, I'm afraid I won't have anything to say. It looks like there are these very specific things that trip people up to the point where they start to feel and become very isolated. That's so important. So let's talk about the community that you two have created. Well, we started out as a as a community of two anxiety sisters that was me and Matt <laughs> Good. back in the eighties. Anxiety buddies, exactly. Yes. And yeah. then we became we now are well over two hundred thousand. So, um, so we feel really, really lucky to be part of such uh, a, a large worldwide group. And we should just clarify that when we say anxiety sisters, we're referring to our experience as you know, we identify as female and that's our experience, but anxiety sisters, it can be anyone of any gender with any amount of anxiety. 
that, you know, so we have a, a lot of people who identify as male in our group and a lot of LGBTQ uh, members, members of that community are in our group. So it's really an inclusive, non-judgmental, free virtual space. And how does the community interact? What are the, the various ways that the community interact with you and, and with each other? Well, I have never seen a more active Facebook page. <laughs> they are, they, uh, the, the, the conversations that go on on our Facebook page, and Mags really runs that, it, it's amazing how supportive and loving and generous the people are with each other and how much they're willing to share. It's really such, um, I think that's, you know, we, we had forums on our website several years ago, and when people were on them, they would then somehow jump ship to Facebook. And so we then realized everyone was on Facebook. <laughs> So, and that's really now where most of our interaction is. But we, you know, we have Facebook Lives where Maggie and I interact with our community. Uh, we post at least three times a day. We have a podcast where we interact. We occasionally write blogs. We, since we wrote the book, we haven't had as much time to write blogs. But we really, and, and then we, our community emails us and we answer every email we get. And how important have you found it is that anxiety sufferers know that they're not alone and that there are other people having the same experiences. It is, it's invaluable because, um, first of all, a lot of times people will say to us, I didn't know that that was anxiety. Like I didn't understand. So I, I've been fearful about leaving my house. Um, but I didn't know other people felt that way too. Um, or, you know, we, we talk about a particular symptom or feeling and people say, oh, that's anxiety. Oh, that's a thing other people have. I thought it was just me. And so that alone, knowing that you're not alone, like going back to that community aspect is so helpful just to um, understand what you're feeling and that it is part of anxiety. And then, you know, our community is incredible incredibly supportive of each other. So, you know, sometimes someone will talk about a struggle they're having and other people will say, yeah, like, I had that too, or I have that too. I understand, you know, and, and that I think is what we all want, right, is a connection and an understanding. Yeah, seen, heard and understood, and then a validation that it'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's what Mags and I see as our job is to normalize the experience of, of anxiety and destigmatize it and talk about the truth. What does it feel like? I mean, our, our, our community, the conversations that are sometimes the most popular are where we actually say, all right, so what are some symptoms people are having? You know, and they'll just, and so you, we do that so people can see just how vast the symptoms are, how many there are, and how, how you're not a freak if you're having one particular symptom that you didn't think was really anxiety. It's oh, a, and you have that in the book. That was one of the things that struck me at first when I began reading through it was like, I hadn't thought of that as being a, a symptom. Yeah, we, we were lucky enough to do an audiobook too. Oh, great. And the director of our audiobook was just fantastic. I adore her. Um, and, um, she basically said after she, you know, she obviously read through our book and heard our book many times, but she, she basically said, you know, it made me realize that there were a few years in my life that I had felt like I had lost, like I hadn't achieved anything. And I, it made me realize that I was actually suffering from extreme anxiety. 
And it, you know, and, and it was amazing because she said, yeah, now it makes sense. Like there was this missing piece in my life that makes some sense now. And that's, I think, you know, what we want to achieve so much is for people to sort of understand themselves and connect with each other and figure out ways to manage this. And we try to use language that's not as scary. You know, we like we, we, we use spinning for panic because when we hear the word panic, our brains think it's a command. So we like spinning and we we use other like we talk about dissociation and um you know, that's a, that can be a scary term. So we use floating because that's what the experience feels like. And we find that when we do that, people will definitely say, oh, really? Yeah, I've done that. I can't believe it. That's that's a thing. Wow. And it's so gratifying to know that that there's conversations being opened up for people so that they can they can accept that they're anxiety sisters. Yeah, yeah it's and- empowering. Acceptance, yes. agency, and connection. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Well, thank you both so much. I've been speaking with Abby Greenberg and Maggie Sarachak uh, about their new book, The Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide, how, how You Can Become More Hopeful, Connected, and Happy. A really fantastic guide in so many respects. So thank you both for that. And thank you both for joining oh, me on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Ellie. We love being here. Oh, yeah. so nice. Thank you so much.